Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Uh, welcome to a week of History Hack ranting. Um, ranting is what we do best. So we we lost our shit when the Supreme Court did their thing. Um, I really lost my shit. I don't usually do politics on Twitter and I went loony. Uh, but then we regained it somewhat and we decided what can we do as a history podcast to stick our oar in within a frame of reference that we operate in. And so Zach decided that we were going to do a whole week that showed people just how damn hard it was for women to get anywhere in this world so that we could hold it up as a frame of reference as to why we're all so pissed off now, didn't you, Zach? There's a basic moral to this story. If you want to understand life, pick up a bloody book and do some reading. Yes. And that's what we're going to demonstrate. Over the course of this week, we're going to look at lots of different angles on women's rights. Yes, we are going to tackle the abortion thing. We're going to look at social housing. We're going to look at uh, women before the courts. We're going to look at contraception through time. We're going to look at how women have had to fight for pretty much every single bloody thing that men have taken for granted since day one. And if you don't like it, then piss off somewhere else is my really adult <laughs> Um, suggestion to anybody who's going oh I don't like the politics being inserted into my history it's history politics has been embedded in it since the dawn of time and if you're going to turn around and say that you're not interested in the history of half of the global population this ain't the podcast for you buddy it's been nice knowing you adios (laughs) do you feel better now (laughs) it's been a week of of that was like a hold my beer moment wasn't it Our guest now looks terrified. Our guest today is Elaine Vice. We're thrilled to have her because uh, she's here and we're going to talk about the fight for female suffrage. Uh, That is women getting a vote. She's an award-winning journalist and author. She's uh, written books such as Fruits of Victory, The Women's Land Army and The Great War. And I'm so having her back to talk about that. Uh, And The Women's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote as well. So Elaine, welcome. Thank you. 
Wonderful I, to be here. Listening to your accent, um, I, I think we should ask all our guests this this week, Zach. What was your reaction to the Supreme Court? Although that that name should be taken off of them, they can be the court in charge. There's nothing supreme about them right now. No, there is not. Um, my reaction was anger and dismay, and um, trying to think how we can overcome this. It is um, a terrible decision, both historically um, dishonest and legally questionable. And of course, um, I would say morally wrong. So I'd go with morally bankrupt as well, especially from people like, oh, don't even get me started on Clarence. Let's not do this. Let's stick to the history. Let's talk about the history because we can demonstrate, can't we, just the sheer force of will that it took for women to get the vote. and how I, I think this week will show Zach as well that they, they can try and take women's rights from them and ownership of women's bodies from them. But, I mean, they're going to have a hard job, aren't they? They are going to have a hard job, and rightly so, because when you understand the scale of the fight to get these rights in the first place, you realise if it was ever not apparent to you that women are, in, in my humble opinion, women are just better. <laughs> Men try hard to be their equals women win um and for once alex isn't twisting my arm to to make that statement um <laughs> yeah i mean been... like, it's just for those who don't know zach raised by a very fierce single mother no mm-hmm. dad in the picture so yeah, yeah he's he's gonna go to bat for us big time aren't you uh, and i think there are plenty others who who will as well but sadly the inverted commas powers that be seem to think that it's okay to tell a woman what to do with their own body um and until such time as that changes certainly i will be doing what i can to make people realize the the historical precedents and realize what fucking stupid idea this was in the first place um apologies rant over elaine let's let's focus on you because you're a guest and you know you're here to enlighten us as opposed to listen to me get angry and ranty and sweary um so let's talk about precedent i mean the first thing i want to say is thank you for joining us because this book really blew up i i think it's fair to say that it went down incredibly well i think on the front cover you've got um, a testimonial from hillary clinton no less is, is that right so you yes. know the, the powers that be uh, in the world of u.s politics looked on this and went yes this was a timely book and it was really well done so we're going to strip it right back to the beginning if we may um, what's the earliest evidence we have of calls for female suffrage, specifically within the USA? Well, I think it's fair to say that women have noticed uh, that they were not getting a fair shake in whatever power structure they were in from the dawn of time, as you said. So it's not like women woke up in the middle of the 19th century and said, oh my goodness, we're not... We don't have the rights that men have. They knew it um, for a long, long time. Um, And they knew it in every nation, not just uh, the United States. And I should say that, of course, the the women's rights and women's suffrage, suffrage, the vote, being only one part of that um, umbrella of of rights that women claim um, equal to to male rights. So... Um, this was a very much a worldwide movement. It was not just in the United States. It was paired most directly with Great Britain. 
and they were sort of sibling uh, movements and causes. The women uh, communicated with each other and visited one another and learned from one another and had conferences together. And so you see the American and the British uh, movement for women's rights and women's suffrage go um, in tandem. So in, in America, there's a famous quotation by Abigail Adams at the dawn of the creation of the, of the United States, first the colonies, then the states. And she, her husband, John Adams, is at the Constitutional Convention, and she's home running the entire farm and the family and all the business um, of the Adams family. And she writes to John and says, um, remember the ladies. Remember that when you're creating this new nation, that you um, have women's rights and interests in mind. Of course, he ignores it. And so what we have is a democracy that is founded on the idea of we the people and government by and for the people we've kicked out your monarchy and we are going to have our a government of citizens except half of the citizens will not be counted not to mention uh, the enslaved populations who will not be counted or the indigenous populations who will not be counted so we begin to have to have a rather narrow view of who citizens are, what their rights are, and who can have a voice in this government by the people. We often, um, what, what, what's so interesting is, as in Great Britain, the abolition movement, the movement to abolish chattel slavery, human bondage, becomes a sort of catalyst for other movements and other ideas about human dignity. And so there again was a worldwide anti-slave movement because the slave trade was not just in the United States, of course, it was in Great Britain. It was in many, many, many countries who profited from it, profited from, from enslaving others. And so what happens is uh, women get involved in this. They, they're deeply, it's a moral crusade. It's a civic crusade. How can you um, enslave fellow human beings? Um, and they become part of this, this uh, abolition movement in Great Britain and, and here and, and elsewhere. But when they go to these meetings, there's a, there's a wonderful um, uh story, which is, which is accurate, of the 1840 anti, worldwide anti-slavery movement. This is the international conference of uh, those who oppose and are, are actively working in their own nations to um, abolish slavery. And there are, in, in America, there are women delegates who are chosen to go, who are very active in, in the movement. And two of them are especially interesting to us. One is Lucretia Mott, who is a Quaker woman from Philadelphia, um, who is a, um, a meeting uh, facilitator in, in, in her church, who is very fearless, active 
um, abolitionist. And she is chosen by her meeting to, to represent the, uh, them at this meeting. And she has full credentials and is a, as a bona fide delegate. And she comes to the meeting and her, her, um, documents are questioned. They say, you're a woman. You, you can't be a full delegate. No, we don't have women who are representatives here. And she is banished up to the balcony of the hall where this was being uh, held in London. I think I mentioned the name of the hall in the book, but I've forgotten it. And um, the women are put behind a curtain and they are allowed to listen, but not participate. And there's this whole day debate about whether women should be able to have their voices heard. Uh, because at that time in, in so-called civil, civilized society, a woman's voice was not to be heard. You were not, a woman was not supposed to speak for uh, an audience of men and women. That was considered, get this word, promiscuous. Oh. <laughs> so, um, so Lucretia Mott, this revered, fierce mother of five lion of a woman is told to go basically up to the back behind a curtain and not be heard. Um, another woman is sent to the balcony. She is not uh, an official delegate. Her husband is. She's a newlywed. She's on her honeymoon. And um, part of that is they go to London for this meeting. Her name is Elizabeth Katie Stanton. And she's 25 years old. And she's up in the balcony with Lucretia Mott, who's, who's a generation older, much more experienced, much more politically savvy. And they're both steaming up there. They're, they're indignant. They're angry. They're apoplectic. And they, they become friends. And they walk around London and they say, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to have a meeting just of women and, and, and you know, talk about all the things that we're not allowed to do. And, they, and so they talk about this. They go home. They communicate. They write letters. It's about eight years of letters. Elizabeth Stanton goes on to have something like five children in this time span. And um, uh, Lucretia Mott is also extremely busy. And finally, in the summer of 1848, when the entire world is going through revolutions and rebellions and civil wars, um, Lucretia Mott comes up to the town in upstate New York where Elizabeth Cady Stanton and several other very active abolition women live. And this, this area was kind of known as a hotbed of, of radical thinking. And they, they're having tea after church on Sunday. And they start saying, talking and, and saying, you know, we should have that meeting. We should just have a meeting of women to express our anger and our frustration and how our government is failing us. And so they decide to have a meeting in the next 10 days. I mean, less than a fortnight. And they organize it. And they, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton writes all the materials. And they pull it off. And this is called the Seneca Falls Convention. It's the first women's rights convention in America. About 300 people come to their surprise. They can believe they just put a little like 
advertisement in the newspaper, in the local newspaper. It was pretty much a local and regional affair because you, know, you didn't have a lot of time to think about it. Um, and there she creates this amazing document called the Declaration of Sentiments. And it's, it's based on the um, Declaration of Independence, same cadence, same wording uh, to take off on it. And it talks about all the rights women do not have. Um, it even talks about equal pay for equal work. And the idea of what women's rights were not, they had no right to property. The property belonged to their father or their, their husbands, no right to um, bring civil suit in a court of law, no right to their children. Their husbands owned their children. They were, they were not allowed in universities. They were not allowed into to professions. And so she, she makes this list of these, and then she comes up with resolutions to um, uh, ameliorate them, to, to solve them. And this document, which of course, the whole meeting was roundly denounced in the press and was called, you know, the insurrection of the women was the headline in New York papers. How very dead, I have an opinion, right? Right, exactly. How dare they speak up? And this is looked at, even though it's certainly not the only meeting of women, um, but it's the only one dedicated to the idea of women's rights. It's not just an offshoot of a, uh, a temperance movement, which of course is all also going on in both of our countries at that time. The idea of, of abolishing the sale of liquor, um, which women were very involved with, both as a moral issue, um, but also as a domestic violence issue. This was the only way they could protect themselves if the laws did not protect them. And, um, and so the, there are women meeting in temperance uh, events at abolition events, but this is the first one that's just about women's rights. And it spawns um, many women's rights conventions in the, in the actually weeks, months, and years to come. I want to take it back, if I may, to something that you said right at the start about Abigail Adams, and she says to, to John, look, don't forget half the population. Um, <laughs> and, and he promptly does. It sounds like a dumb question, but why? You know, is because you've got this, this point in history where America has the opportunity to, to really pause and think. And it is, in, on paper at least, it is. You know, this, this suggestion, all men are created equal and all the rest of it, that is embedded in the fabric of what the US seeks to be, as it starts out on this new path, having broken away from the United Kingdom, it has the potential to be so much more than it actually does by being kind of Western European in its attitudes towards women. Why is that decision taken? Is there just too much influence coming from Western Europe? Is it just too early for people to be seriously thinking about women as active political players? Is it the fact that you actually in the US, because you haven't had the monarchical system where women have had influence in court in different kinds of ways, there isn't that same cultural precedent? What's the reasoning behind it? It's because men run the government. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like, you know, as, as you say, how can you deny half of the population of the world their rights and get away with it? And this seems to um, been a good gig for for the patriarch. Um, and 
I think one of the interesting things, which is coming out in modern uh, scholarly research about, about the suffrage movement, is that uh, the, the women founders of the movement, and there's, there's you know, a, a group of women who become active very quickly, um, studied some of the indigenous tribes in the Northeast who, whose own form of tribal government gave enormous power and influence and voice um, to the women in, in the tribe. And they visit there, they talk to them, they, they study it. And um, there is now the understanding that they took some of the ideas of the suffrage and women's rights movement, women's suffrage being only one of the women's rights being, being claimed, um, from these indigenous people who had figured it out, figured out a, a better way um, on their own. So when you say, was there Western influence? Uh, yes, of course. You know, our, we, we still uh, rely on British common law today. So we, we are not totally broken free. Uh, many of the men who were, who or considered our founders were either the, uh, had, had been born in, um, in Europe or first generation, first or second. So the, the tie is very strong. Um, but also it doesn't take much to, to um, claim power. How do you claim power? And that's one of the questions that, that these movements are asking. Abolition asks it. Um, women's suffrage asks it. The civil rights movement in the U.S. in the mid-20th century asks it. Who, who claims power? And, and how leg- illegitimate is that claim? I'm really interested to ask you, um, we've had a couple of names already, but what are the backgrounds of the leading advocates in the early stages of this process and what kind of reception do they get? (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing not a very encouraging one. Uh, No. Um, It's interesting that the the women founders uh, in the uh, mid-1840s, 1850s and 60s tend to be... uh, middle or upper middle class women who are better educated than most women. They have had uh, through family wealth or, or uh, through uh, a liberal, liberal parents or just happenstance uh, or force of will. They have gotten themselves uh, fine educations as, as fine as a woman can get because she can't really avail herself of, of higher education in, in most places. And so they are educated, they are worldly, they have, some of them have traveled, some, many of them are already politically active. And now that's not to say that we don't have the factory girls, the shop girl, the shop yeah. women, um, the, the, the immigrant woman, and also very important in, in America, to understand that black women were very, very keen, uh, understood completely how important um, this vote would be. Uh, the free black women who, who were allowed to free movement. Uh, of course, the slaves had, had no say in. But um, the free black women in the, nor- in the North and in the West were very, very active 
in, in trying to uh, join the movement, organize, uh, bring support from their communities. And, and that, was, that was a tough, tough road to hope for, for all women. Um, how were they? <laughs> um, so there is sometimes a um, uh, criticism that this was a middle-class white women's movement. And to a greater, great extent it was. But that doesn't mean that, because they had the means to do this. They had the means. They did not have to be, um, for the most part, uh, domestic servants. They were not, they had help for their children. I mean, they, they had the means, just as today, that there are certain women who, are, who have the uh, means to be politically active and others who care just as passionately but do not. So it is founded by middle-class white women, but immediately is uh, joined by, by women of every class and every um, race and religion. There are um, uh, Latina leaders in the West. There are Asian American women in the West. There are, um, you know, it, it becomes a very wide movement. How are they treated? Well, I'll just say this, that in the mid to late 19th century, when Susan B. Anthony, another name that everyone kind of knows, one of the, the famous founders and a quite an extraordinary woman um, who would go up, you know, they, they traveled from, from little town to little town, giving speeches, trying to change hearts and minds, because they knew they had to change attitudes before they could change the law. And that's something that we have to understand today that that has to proceed. What, what Susan Anthony's mantra was, organize, educate, agitate. You had to do all those things. And she used to say that she could mark the progress of the movement by the nature of the projectiles that were thrown at her. So when she no longer got rotten eggs thrown with her and just plain eggs, well, that was progress. When it wasn't rotten tomatoes, um, and just regular old vegetables, then that was clearly progress. Uh, they were demonized. They were denounced. They were belittled. Uh, they were told they were, uh, you know, whores, um, traitors, uh, loose women, um, uh, Bolsheviks. <laughs> when that time comes, they are accused of everything. Um, and they are going to ruin the moral fabric of society. They're going to abandon their families. Um, all these incredible uh, epithets are, are, are. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Aimed at them. And they have to just keep going. And this is exactly kind of the point of what we were trying to achieve with this week of shows to make people realize the, we're going to use a technical history hack term here, just what a shit show it's been to achieve any kind of, you know, just that simple ability to determine who governed you. 
and, and this is the, the kind of response. Um, I do want to talk about methods of campaigning. You kind of led us quite neatly into it there, because in the UK, we see the suffragette and the suffragist divide. And for those who can't remember the distinction between the two, the suffragette are the, are the more, inverted commas, militant ones, the more, inverted commas, violent ones. Varying forms of that, the way to remember it, um, as you're saying the word suffragette, say it aggressively and imagine you're slapping a policeman in the face. Um, not that I advocate doing that today, I hasten to add, unless you desperately want to see the inside of a cell. Suffragists, more kind of about, the, like you were saying there, you know, the change of hearts and minds. Is there an equivalent in the US? Is there that suffragette, suffragist discussion, first of all? But also, do you then see that tension being played out between sort of the almost like a splintering of the movement as they campaign in different ways. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, absolutely. There's several splinterings. And, and I'm very glad you bring up the suffragist versus suffragette distinction. Uh, we certainly have to deal with it uh, a great deal. Um, I have to, <laughs> whenever I, I'm traveling, give a talk, I have to give the, you know, I explain this. Um, because, and, and, and it's an interesting as, it, as that term comes over uh, to the US, um, the, even the militant wing, which develops in the uh, first and second decade of the 20th century in America. And it's, it's through women who actually um, cut their teeth, got their apprenticeship in Great Britain with the Pankhursts. So someone like Alice Paul and Lucy Byrne are young graduate students, and they get caught up in the suffrage movement here at the beginning of the 20th century. And they learn all the more militant confrontational tactics. They bring it home to America. And um, so people naturally, well, the press calls them suffragettes because they are of this more militant stripe, even though they never actually destroy property or do some of the more militant things uh, that were done in the UK. But what's interesting about that is, is the word suffragette is uh, was made up by a journalist in London in 1906 to make fun of the militant suffragists. He uses the diminutive from the French et um, to make them seem, you know, kind of silly and frivolous. And the, the, the UK, uh, the Pankhurst suffra suffragettes take that name and say, okay, you're going to call us that? We'll call it 
we'll call ourselves that. They, they own it, as we'd say today. They, they we plant it. bombs in Westminster Abbey. We'll call ourselves by the silly name you thought up for us. That's right. Um, but in America, the, the more militant, uh, more radical, they aren't really militant, they're radical, um, National Women's Party, which is the Alice Paul uh, wing of the movement, say, no, we're not going to use that silly term made up by some man trying to make fun of us. So we are not going to be called suffragists. We're going to be called suffragists. Um, so, so both sides are both, both wings take, uh, keep the name of suffragist. But of course, the press loves suffragette. It's easier to say. It's more fun. It's a little, uh, you know, how it word for, for uh, it, it being a little more sparkly. And so what, what happens is that that word sticks and people still call American uh, suffrage advocates suffragettes and we have to um, uh, correct it. But that split first appears in, in the U.S. Um, actually right after the Civil War when women who had worked for the abolition of slavery, worked for the uh, freeing of the slaves and for the, to get the vote for, for, for the slaves, are assumed that all the disenfranchised classes will get it, that women, white women and black women, will get the vote along with black men who've been disenfranchised. And they're really sorely bitterly disappointed when they're told, no, uh, America can't take two big reforms at once. We can't do the um, freed slaves and we can and women at the same time. You're just going to have to wait. Oh, please. Multitask uh, people, multitask, but men can't, can they? No, they can't. Sort of attention deficit. Yeah. And so, again, we see something that's done in history a great deal which is the powers that be pit two disenfranchised, powerless groups against one another and say only one of you are going to get the prize and go fight it out. And that's what happens. And it, it splits allies like Frederick Douglass, who was an ardent, called himself a women's rights man. And he, he truly, truly, truly was. And he, he supported female suffrage and he supported the suffrage movement. Uh, for all of his life. And he has to then go to his women colleagues and say, uh, you know, black men need this for our very lives. We're being killed uh, in the reconstruction violence. And, you know, we, we, we have to have this. And I know you're disappointed and the women's hour will come. I and mean, that's where the title of my book comes from. The women's hour will come, but you will have to wait. And so some of the women suffragists, um, say, okay, we'll just have to support this. We'll wait, we'll work on the state level because we have a federalist system. It's a little more complicated. We don't have just parliament to worry about. We have the state legislatures. And at, you know, at the time there's uh, a growing number of states, but uh, we have to deal with the legislatures because uh, election law is state-based in the US. So each state can make their own rules. So there were states in which women could vote and states in which they couldn't. Very much like, reproductive rights today. And that's something that, that is part of the, the US system that we have to contend with. And so they, it splits for a generation, for 25 years. It splits among those who supported 
the 14th and 15th Amendments, which gave uh, the vote to black men, but not black women. They were just as angry uh, and not, not white women. And, um, and those who, who um, you know, those who, who would not support it and those who, who did. And so there are, there's the National Association of Women's Suffrage and the American Association of Women's Suffrage. And they work at, <laughs> uh, not together. And then finally they merge and become the National American, what a name, Association of Women's Suffrage uh, in 1890. And then they go forward. Then there's another split in 1913, when Alice Paul comes back with all these great ideas for juicing up the movement, which has been kind of dormant, and says, look, we can't do the same things. We've got to be more confrontational. We're not going to beg anymore. We're not going to ask politely. We're not going to be ladylike. We're going to be rude. We're going to be disruptive. We're going to demand what we want um, and make the men understand there are consequences. Uh, if they don't support this. And so they pick up the White House. They do things that have never been done before. They pick up the White House. They um, stand silently at, on the steps of the Senate. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're doing more publicly confrontational things. And the other suffragists are just as busy, but they are working more in the system very, very adroitly. Um, and it takes both of those uh, to to finally um, pressure the Congress to pass a federal amendment, which will um, supersede all the state amendments. You know, they, they were also working in the states. Remember, it takes 72 years from the time that the women at the Seneca Falls Convention first sign on to a demand for the vote, which was considered just totally outrageous at the time. Um, to the time of the 19th Amendment in 1920 um, gives, by the law of the land, women the right to vote. But then, of course, we'll understand that this does not cover everyone. It, it does on paper, but because of the federalist system, because the states make um, uh, rules and laws for who's eligible to vote, it will be state law that will deprive mostly black women and men of their right to vote until you know, the civil rights era and the Voting Rights Act 1965 in America. And now we see an erosion of that Voting Rights Act. Too. I think you've mentioned the 19th Amendment, which does finally go through in 1920. But mm-hmm. there's concern, isn't there, beforehand, that this thing isn't going to get over the line. It's not cut and dried. Oh, no, it's not. And again, because this is an American story, race becomes a big part of it. It's, it's fascinating to me in doing research for this book. Um, who opposed women's suffrage? You know, Zach asked that question. Like, why, why couldn't you think bigger, think better? Who opposed this? Why would they oppose having their own mothers and sisters and wives have a say in government? Um, and what was so fascinating to me is, to, to discover who the opponents were. And they change a bit over time. But what's uh, so interesting to me is, A, the corporate interests who were against the idea of women having a voice in government at the state or the federal level. Well, this and, is like the gun lobbies all over, isn't it? 
Oh, yes. People making money off of a situation don't want it to change. Exactly. Um, And here it wasn't the gun manufacturers. It was clothing manufacturers who were afraid that if women could vote, they would outlaw child labor and cheap women's labor. And those industries depended on cheap labor to make a profit. So uh, it was going to be bad for their bottom line. They didn't want it. The liquor industry, women had been very um, uh, prominent in the suffrage movement, as we, we saw back in the 19th century. And prohibition in America, that very strange experiment, was already law. It, it went into effect in 1918, 1919, as the 18th Amendment, just preceding the 19th. And so it was in effect. So you say, well, why are the liquor interests, the bartenders, liquor manufacturers, the hotels, the restaurants, why are they all against women's suffrage? Because they are afraid that if women have a voice, more of a voice in government, they'll, they'll want the prohibition rules enforced. And if they can keep women away, well, maybe it won't, they won't be enforced. And then there's the racial aspect. Um, in the, especially, you know, I write about the last battle for the last state to ratify, uh, to make the uh, 19th Amendment enter the Constitution as law. And it's a southern state. It's Tennessee. And so you see um, all the vitriol come out. Uh, most of the southern states actually reject, do not ratify the 19th Amendment. They say no. Uh, three quarters of the states have to approve it for it to become law. And, and um, the southern states are all saying no. And the main reason they're saying no is because it will allow Black women to vote. And the 15th Amendment back in 1870 had already um, given Black men the vote. But that had been um, undermined by state laws, by Jim Crow laws. And so the Southern states had figured out how to keep black men from voting. They very successful at them with intimidation and violence um, and, you know, grandfather clauses and literacy tests and things like that. But um, they were afraid that it would, might be unseemly to do these things to women. Now they got over their uh, uh, reluctance very quickly. And what we see in the 40 years um, coming after the 19th Amendment until the Voting Rights Act is that in the southern states, um, black men and women will be um, uh, prohibited from voting in, in many, many cases. So those are the opponents. And those are the uh, what the suffragists have to face. And they have to build alliances with not only... Um, uh, racist and, and misogynistic um, congressmen, of course, all, all of Congress is male at the time. Um, just about 99.9% of state legislators are male. And they have to convince them to give up power, to, to give up half of their electoral power. And that's not easy, but they do it. Kai, I'm going to rabbit hole just for a moment, if I may. And go back to something that you were saying about that that pitting of black male suffrage versus female suffrage and pitting those two movements against each other. 
And this is a, a question that comes from ignorance of, of not being well-versed in the, the history of the, the US uh, democratic movement. But it does strike me that there's almost a sort of a suckering in going on there because we know about the nature of um, the Jim Crow laws, separate and equal doctrine, and the way in which nominally black men may have had the right to vote. But in fact, there was a whole apparatus that was deliberately, willfully making it incredibly difficult for black men to access the vote. Was that all part of the same kind of insidious aim? You know, so so we're going to make these two sides fight it out. And then on top of that, let's make this even more difficult. Or is it more organic than that? Well, the, the original fight uh, over the what's called the Reconstruction Amendments. So right after the Civil War, um, the 13th Amendment um, outlaws slavery. Britain already had a law like that for, for quite a few years. Um, the next that comes out of Congress is, are the 14th and 15th Amendments. 14th, very important. Uh, from there, it's our due process uh, precedents um, and our citizenship precedents. Um, that are <laughs> at issue again again today, um, but those are those are that's an extraordinarily broad and and fundamental uh, amendment to our constitution, and that was not sort of explicit enough um, to guarantee that that uh, the newly emancipated black um, citizens would would be allowed to vote. And so the 15th Amendment explicitly says um, that uh, no one shall be denied the right to vote um, on account of race or previous servitude. So it's, it's just, it's, it is uh, specifically written for the free Black uh, slave. But it's also um, the 14th Amendment put the word male into the Constitution for the first time. It says uh, male citizens. And so put together, that means, well, okay, um, black men can have the vote, but black women cannot. And that, that occurs right after the Civil War. Um, then Reconst- during Reconstruction, um, black men really do vote, supported by the black women, organized all, you know, very much by black women in the communities. And they do vote. And so we see this enormous um, resurgence of elected officials. And there are Black men sent to Congress. There are Black men in the state legislatures. There are Black men who become mayors in the South. And all this uh, becomes frightening to the power, the white male power structure. And so by the 18... 70s reconstruction has been you know sort of kneecapped um and it goes back to the status quo and the jim crow laws begin to be promulgated the black laws as they're called uh again ma- putting these restrictions on um, making it much more difficult uh and and literally throwing uh the elected black elected representatives out of the chambers and so we see that, you know, once they, once it becomes obvious that yes, um, our black citizens want 
to participate and want to be able to, to be part of self-government, uh, then the powers that be get nervous and say, okay, so now what we can, can we do? And they at the state level, um, abetted by a complicit Congress, shall I say, they do nothing to help. Um, they, they make this, um, uh, you know, what we call Jim Crow laws of legalized segregation, uh, legalized degradation, legalized voter suppression. And, um, and, and, and so the suffragists are in the last phase of the, of the movement are dealing with that too. And that becomes, as we see what happens in Nashville, Tennessee, in, in the account I give in my book, uh, race becomes a huge issue. Um, and it's used by the suffragists when politically expedient uh, because they do have to try to appease racist legislators. Um, but it's also used even more uh, effectively and diabolically by the anti-suffrage forces who use it as a weapon, um, who threaten that if the 19th Amendment uh, is allowed to be ratified, that Black women will take over the nation. I mean, they're just crazy, as we call them, conspiracy theories um, going around. And, and so race becomes an issue in suffrage um, from the beginning to the end. And of course, continues on. Elaine, we've kind of talked already about how you feel about what happened um, in the Supreme Court, but looking at the future and your knowledge of the past um, with respect to that, what do you think the future holds in a time when women now have fewer rights in some states that they did have a couple of months ago? Hmm. Well, I'd like to say that women are going to rise up and take to the streets and pick at the White House, though it's not the White House that we have to pick it, pick mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, um, make, um, make our arguments and make our power known. That doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think there's some, I think we're still kind of shocked. I think we're still, um, dispirited, depressed. We also have elections coming up this fall that are really important. And I think people yeah. are, are, are concentrating on that rather than on public, public protest. And that's fine. That is really where the power lies. And that's where we have to put our energies right now. Um, I think that in order, especially in the abortion or forced birth issues, um, taking away bodily autonomy from women. I think, frankly, we have to make it clear um, that this sort of decision-making, if you're going to take bodily autonomy from women, well, maybe it has to be taken from men. I think we need to make that very um, clear and painful because I think... This is, you know, you can talk about some religions who believe that abortion is a sin. Uh, My religion does not. Um, I'm not forcing anyone to have an abortion. You cannot force me to, um, or to, to, to have a forced birth. So um, I think we, we also need to know that, um, you know, conception doesn't happen. uh, (laughs) 
immaculately um, that men are involved, men are responsible. And, you know, there were interesting, probably blue sky going to go nowhere um, discussions happening in social media. I've seen where, you know, okay, well, then maybe part of these laws should be that men have to put up, that the father of the child has to put up a $350,000 bond to make sure that uh, mother has the wherewithal to raise this child. You know, we, the slogan of, of pro-life, which I, I never use, um, because it really has nothing to do with, with this question, because in America, we do not have universal health care. We do not have um, uh, uh, available higher education at a decent price. We do not have child care. We do not have uh, parental leave. We don't have all the things needed to support new life. Um, and so until we get serious about this, um, that part of it, I don't want to hear about pro-life uh, or the slogan of pro-life. Um, so as you can tell, I'm still quite angry. <laughs> uh, but it's not, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's a, whole, a whole range of issues. Uh, again, voting rights being eroded, a big concern. Um, our foundation of our democracy being attacked. Um, I think people... You know, women are, are very angry about this, especially, especially rolling it back uh, after 50 years, making um, one of the things that I find really frightening, uh, among all the others, or diabolical about this, is that if in some states now, um, a woman who seeks an abortion or, or has an abortion terminates a pregnancy, is really all it is, um, is uh, committing a felony. And the providers of that medical um, procedure would be felons. And it's, they, it's the idea that the person that drives them to the state line yes. could be done for aiding men. And, and also the, the medical professionals and the person who, who drives them. They would be felons and they would lose the right to vote. I think there's also significant kind of fear that, as you're kind of pointing to there, it, it doesn't end here. Potentially, and, yeah. and uh, you know, in in the past, we have sort of looked at shows like The Handmaid's The Handmaid's Tale, and and almost scoffed. Uh, you know, well, that would never realistically happen, yeah. and and yet, an, an end point like that always has to start with an initial step. And this was a more than significant initial step. Uh, it, it feels. Um, which is why we at History Hacks sat down, had an adult conversation and decided that notwithstanding my rant earlier, that this, this matters. This is far too important as a moment in history for us to not start to take this issue seriously and set it within a serious historical context. And Elaine, you've done that beautifully for us today. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. This book matters. Go and read it. The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote, we will do um, all the usual things in terms of making sure you can find the links to go and get it. Please do get it. I'm not even going to do my thing about Jeff Bezos and Amazon and Rocket Fuel and all the rest of it. Just go get the book, get the damn book. If you need to give Jeff Bezos your profits, go do that. Actually, okay. there's a better way. There's bookshop.org. It's a nonprofit that shares uh, proceeds with your independent bookstore. Which is exactly what we use. Uh, so folks, there you go. You, I haven't even prepped 
our interviewee <laughs> to, to plug that for us. Um, but Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really enlightening. It was a pleasure. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.